Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, so, uh, another special guest we have is Kirk Nowry. I've asked him to speak on this special occasion for a handful of reasons. One of them is Kirk designed the whole three-year legacy campaign that we have, walked us through every step. He also designed the campaign that got us into this building. Uh, and he's done hundreds of campaigns across the country for churches. And he said right at the beginning of this one, and of course I, I didn't fully understand until he, till right now I, I fully get it. Uh, he said this will be the most important project your church does for those kids. He and his wife, Violetta, have dedicated themselves to caring, loving, and rescuing kids. That he's the president of Hope Partners International, that build hope centers around the world to rescue and transform children in the worst of circumstances. We've been able to be as a church to India to see what that hope center there is like. And we support it. We're a part of that. We're partners with them in that ministry. And we're talking about you don't just come in and give a kid food or you give them something and that's it. We're talking about we educate them. We, we house them. We feed them. We uh, train them. We get them to the point where they can graduate high school and then get them into college and jobs. That's what. When we say transformation, not just rescue all the way through with the gospel. It's a profound thing to see. He's got five hope centers on three continents, 2,042 kids right now rescued. That's what that is. It's amazing. And even as we speak, we've been talking about it. He's launching three new ones right now. Three new ones are being launched. So um, it's, it's great to partner with him. He has three children of his own. One of them runs the Hope Center in Costa Rica. His son, Matt, I've had the privilege. Kirk dragged me out to northern Iraq where his son oversees and cares for the refugees in the refugee camps in northern Iraq and for, for Samaritan's Purse. That is a sight you'll never forget in your whole life to be there. His other son in central Florida, is the executive pastor there. Um, one of my favorite things to tell you today is that Kirk was my youth pastor. When I came to Christ at 14 and walked into the very first church, he was the student pastor. I was with him all through high school, and he poured his life into mine. Gave me my first opportunity to preach, my first opportunity to lead, and to this day is one of the most important voices in my life, as you would imagine. I love you, Kirk, and I'm glad you're here. Come on up. Oh, Peter, thank you, Mike. I love you. I wouldn't want to be any other place in the world right now than to be here at Hillside with you. 
over this journey with your pastor and his precious dear wife, Gail, and people like Dave Bream and Jill and folks that have now joined us in our, our journey in these hope centers, especially in India right now. God is doing some amazing things, not only in Hillside, but because of you to these desperate places around the world now that the United Nations calls that the fourth world. More than a billion people on the planet today live in, in what they're defining as a new poverty. Uh, one of the great challenges that we face as these children launch into their futures because of this building. But I've got to say well done, church, with your capital campaign, because to raise $7 million and soon to be uh, $7,409,000 with faith and courage by year's end is a remarkable thing to happen in the worst pandemic our country's faced in a long, long time. And it talks about the depth that you have as, as Christ followers. This past uh, week, I had the opportunity to read a letter that Mother Teresa, one of my heroes there in India because of her work with the lepers over a lifetime, she uh, wrote a letter to a friend encouraging them to continue in their work in missions. And at the end of it, my dear friend Andy Steimer asked me to, to read her salutation that she put at the end of, her, of every letter. Probably the most respected woman of work and character and self-sacrifice of our generations for sure. And she wrote, before she wrote her name, Mother Teresa, our sisters of mercy, she said, give until it hurts. That was always her salutation. Now those of you that have raised children or are raising children, or you now are raising grandchildren, or great-grandchildren maybe, that phrase is something we've experienced, giving until it hurts, because there's something deep down inside of us that when we call the word legacy, those are the things we think about, our children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. We begin to think about those Christ followers, these children that may not be biologically ours, but then, nonetheless, God has entrusted them to us. I'll give you an example this morning. As your pastor said, uh, our youngest son, Matthew, and his wife, Sarah, and their three children, Ezra, Macy, and Lucy, have been in northern Iraq for 10 years, advancing the gospel to unreached people groups like the Yazidis, and relieving suffering in Jesus' name to all those that suffered the atrocities of ISIS and, and the wars there a few weeks ago when you heard about these, this rocket attack in Erbil. I got a call that night at about 10 p.m. and with our kids doing what they've done now over a decade more than that, Matthew, our son, said, Pops, when you get up in the morning, you're going to see we had a rocket attack toward the U.S. base here in Erbil, and some of the rockets hit in our area. And I've gotten that kind of call from him before. I said, how's everyone? Here's his answer. I said, how's everyone? He said, our team is fine. And pops, we're okay. 
I said, anything I can do for you, son? He said, Dad, I just wanted to call you before I go to bed. You sit back and you say to yourself, now, when they started in Sudan 17 years ago or so ago, our daughter and, and our youngest son, Franklin gave, Graham came to me and gave me Psalm 34-7 when he recruited them to go in that war there, the genocide. And I was taking a deep breath. He walked over to me and he said, you know, Kirk, let me give you this verse, Psalm 34-7, that God gives the righteous angels to encamp or surround them and protect them. He said, on those tough days, and there will be tough days ahead, you remember that promise. So that night when he called, I just prayed that prayer again. Lord, I know your angels are surrounding our family right now. I ask you one more time to protect them as they advance the gospel and relieve suffering in Jesus' name. So we raise up these children in this new building, and what an accomplishment. I've walked through the building with Lindsay. What a, as Pete says, that she's a hero to him. She's really a hero to me because she even helps us in Hope Partners. They are rock stars to my wife and I because they're taking their entire family to India in the fall. There are some of us that when we are given children or grandchildren, we want to keep them right here in Keller with us, don't we? I mean, I, in fact, I'd like them, you know, if you've seen my fat Greek wedding, we want to buy the houses right next door. We'd say that would be utopia. We're going to talk about this in this message this morning as the purpose behind what God wants to do with these children. And you're the gatekeepers. Legacy. There are some of you that gave extraordinary amounts to this campaign. To get to $7.409 million, it took some large gifts. I really love wealthy people during a capital campaign. And when they see me coming, they realize after that first meeting that I'm going to ask them to make extraordinary gifts to whom much is given, much is required. That's the horsepower of a campaign to get you to 7.409. But you want to know what the heart of a campaign is? It's that single mom that gave up a meal for her kids at McDonald's every other week to make this new building for her children a reality. That's the heart of a campaign. And all of you came together, and as Pete said a moment ago, those of you that have run the race, we have just a, a have we called the race or we're extending the race till the end of the year? So we're going to the end of the year with this race. So you've crossed the 26.2-mile marathon, and you've just found out that they've moved the finish line. <laughs> but we're not going to leave you alone. Pete's going to continue, and Gail, Dave's going to continue. Matt and his family are going to continue. We're not going to ask anybody to do anything that we're not willing to do ourselves. So we take a deep breath and just have to run a little bit further because it's the right thing to do. That's a legacy that we're leaving behind, that one day a story will be told that we had this pastor, wife up here with the, the 
I almost said fiddle, violin. Her twin sister up here, they're singing their hearts out. I looked at this little 10th grade girl a minute ago. Man, can she sing. Beautiful young lady. Big smile on her face. Facing the challenge of losing her eyesight. God's raising up a generation for what Pete just described is the future that we're not going to go into with fear. My goodness, it's not an option, not at Hillside. Because in the darkest of nights, with the most discouraging of circumstances surrounding us, greater is he that's in us than he that is in this world. You've just proved that. You're the light that's, that's shining on a hill. Here in Keller, Texas, as our former president, Ronald Reagan, said. And so we come in here today with hearts full of what God accomplished. You know, the minute somebody says something about Kirk Dowry, I go back to Mother Teresa when she received the Nobel Peace Prize. Can you imagine a little four-foot-nothing Albanian woman that gave her entire life to scraping the wounds of lepers and relieving their suffering, and she wins the Nobel Peace Prize, and all these reporters are all around her. One of them called out with a question. She said, yes. And this gentleman said, did you ever think the world would recognize you the way that you were recognized today? My favorite, my favorite quote of hers. And she looked at that bank of reporters and she said, I'm just a little pencil in the hand of a writing God sharing his love to the world. And so anything that, that I was allowed to be a part of, mark it down. Pete and I, we're just the little pencils that are gifted to have the kind of people that were on this stage a moment ago. But I must say today, because he won't say it to himself, and I hadn't heard anything this morning in the first service or even unto now. You know, I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, when we're not in, in India or one of our centers. And I'm just saying... But I don't know if you watched the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year. Now, I'd brag on I'm a Miami Dolphin guy. Pete knows it. But I haven't, I haven't been able to wear my orange and aqua since Dan Marino left the team. So when they said Brady came in to, to lead our team, I thought, you know, most guys, they come in, they're disappointed in their return and all that. You know, I'm really, I don't know about this. But I'm here to tell you, Super Bowls tell the whole story. That a quarterback could make that much difference. And it's not Pete's human talent, talent and capability and personality, which he certainly has. It is what God's done through his leadership here at Hillside. And the more I'm around Gail, I've been around Gail since she was a little college girl. And I've heard some stories this weekend that, oh, I just want to hear again. I laugh so much. But if we had not had Gail behind Pete and alongside of Pete, they, they would not have sustained the 25 years God's called them here to serve. And if he doesn't serve another day as the, as the pastor and leader here at Hillside, the accomplishment of building this building for what will happen in these children is going to be seen 
and the generations that are ahead when they just say, do we even have a picture of Pete around here anymore? And so that's the generations that pass because that's the kingdom of God. Now, you're going to help me do something right now. Would you help me do something personally? Talking about children and children's buildings. I have an extraordinary wife, raised in communist Romania, was in, if you followed uh, the atrocities of the U.S. gymnastics program under Bella Caroli and his wife, uh, and this terrible doctor that has gone to prison for the abuse of our, our USA elite gymnasts. My wife grew up in that program in Romania under Bella Caroli. I married an immigrant. She reminded me this week in speaking Romanian, which I know is not very good when she's speaking it to me. <laughs> Baby, I want you to come up here. She is my backbone, my legs, my brain. And uh, everybody will see her around, and I, I wanted you, if you don't know her, to be able to meet her and associate us together. But today, in northern Iraq, is Macy, our middle granddaughter's birthday, seventh birthday. And right now, they're online from northern Iraq here at Hillside, because I told Macy, Grandpa's going to do something for you today. Let's put, there's Macy. That's yesterday, and I mean she's a precious little girl. And you know what she calls me? You know what she calls me? She started it this summer. We were in a pool, and I was going along, throwing each of the kids up in the air best I could, and she said, look out, old person coming through. So I want us to all say to Macy this morning, Macy, that's grandma and grandpa, and we want to say happy birthday to you this morning. We wish we were there with you in Iraq, and I'll make it up to you. And from the bottom of our hearts, we love you. Happy birthday, Macy. Thank you, baby. So this morning, we're going to get our arms around how we should feel about our relationship with God. You know, I look out at you and you're all ages, young, some of you not quite as old as I am, but, and by the way, I'm wearing a suit today because I didn't have any clean clothes. When We've been out on the road about nine days, and my clothes ran out, so in case you're wondering, but it does feel pretty good. So I want to say to you this morning that, that no matter your age, we're in a relationship with God. And I don't know how long it's been. Whatever you face, today you can be in the midst of a deep crisis. Or you could be up on the top of the mountain right now, excited, and everything seems to be going well. My wife and I both had COVID. It gave me an extra heartbeat and took all my taste away. Um, seems to be semi-permanent permanent right now. We've both had all of our vaccines, ready to travel back into wherever God sends us to next. We've lost loved ones. We've faced great challenges financially. I watched a lady today who's 
on the news early here in Dallas, her husband left her with five kids in the middle of the pandemic. He lost his job, he got discouraged, and he left his wife and five kids. And she was there with tears running down her face here in Dallas and said, we don't have enough money to feed these children. So what do we do in the midst of we've just accomplished this $7 million challenge? Nothing on this campus, not any building, is worth these sacrifices if it were not what we were going to do inside them. That in this worship center, all of this worship, all of the thanks, all the preaching that will be done today, matters not if there's one person that walked in here today, one, didn't even know we were dedicating a building and thought to themselves, oh, brother, but they can't honestly say that they know if they died, heaven is their home. Can you imagine being in a crisis? As my wife said when I met her, she said, I've been searching for God all of my life. I said, did you not go to churches? She said, I did. I guess I missed the Sunday when they told you how to give your heart to Christ. If all of us, a thousand people or so, are gathered today and one soul is in here, that can't say their sins are forgiven and that heaven is their home. This building exists to give them hope and give them salvation, amongst other things. But that is, that is at the pinnacle of our cause, to enlarge the boundaries of heaven and enrich the lives of believers. My father... Hard-working man. Grew up working in the steel mills, then he went to war in Korea. And then when he came home, he took his family to Florida where he built bridges, the big concrete bridges all over Florida. We were a blue-collar class of family. Our first years, I grew up in a trailer park in diversity in Miami. But we didn't know that we didn't have anything. There was always something to eat, and when I was eight or nine years old, I had my first jobs. Dad taught us the value of hard work, that you never ask for something that you didn't first work for. So he is, my mom's died back in 04, it's 2014. He can't sleep, he's got early onset dementia. He's having these dreams, wandering dreams. So he gets up to rake leaves at 2 o'clock in the morning because he's, my dad just doesn't lay in a bed. He's, you know, he didn't lay in a bed. We didn't lay in a bed. So he's out there raking leaves 2 in the morning. He falls over a curb. He hits his head, and he gets a brain bleed. My brother calls me to Ocala, Florida. I leave Atlanta and go down there, and he's got the shaved spot in his head. and They've done a brain surgery, and he's upset with himself, and Something had changed. I didn't know what it was. So I'm sitting by the bedside with him and begin to see my dad slipping a little bit. We called the doctor and the nurse, and they came in and said it started bleeding again. We need to go back in. And he reaches over. I'm his firstborn son, my brother and I. He reaches over, and my dad still had hands that would wreck you. Eighty four years old at the time. He reached over, gets me by the forearm. I turned to him, and he said, Son, don't let him do this. I'm ready to go see your mother. 
I said, Dad, are you sure? I'm ready to go, son. Doctor comes in, I tell him, the doctor gets mad at me, and I want to, you know, we have this phrase, Pete knows what it is. I want to pull a Bob Nowry on him. That's my dad's name. I said, you get, let my father make his own decisions. And so a few days later, he's slipping toward heaven. And I put my arms around him. My brother was in the room, and I asked everyone else to leave. And my dad always had this fear of heaven. He Somehow, this West Virginia mindset, he had a fear of heaven. He'd given his heart to Christ, but he just didn't feel worthy. So I put my arms around my dad. I said, Dad, you're about to see Mom, and you're about to see Jesus. Pray one, one more pray, prayer with your son. And I helped him pray, pray the confirmation that he'd received Christ, that his sins were forgiven, that heaven was his home, that everything was going to be okay. That afternoon, I'm by the bedside, and he reaches over and gets me by the arm again. We're watching, you know, hospital room TV, not really watching it. And he said, son, I turned to my dad. Now, my dad's not a hugger, not a I love you, son, or any of that kind of stuff. He's a hard-working, he's made for hard work and war. And I turned to him, and his lips quivering. I said, what's the matter, Pops. And he said, I'm sorry. I said, you're sorry? You got nothing to be sorry about, Dad. He said, listen to me, just like that. He said, I'm sorry. I said, for what, Pops? He said, I was too hard on you. I said, oh, come on, Dad. He said, I was too hard on you, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I just wanted you to amount to something. And it was just hours, and he was gone into the arms of Jesus and my mom. That's what I want for these kids. I want them to amount to something. But not the things that come out of my will. That's where I think we miss the mark often. We want what we want for our kids and grandkids. We want them close. God, you stay away from them if you're talking about taking them to northern Iraq or India. I want them to take over the business. I want them to be in Keller. I want them to be right next door. When that's not what God's called us to do. The legacy that is given us is that we are entrusted as, as God the Father gave us to Jesus Christ. We are the chosen whether we're in the Old Testament, the chosen of Israel to be a, a blessing and an example to the world. And look at the challenges and heartache and anxiety and, and brokenness that went through Israel, except for one purpose, I've called you to my name. You are my children. And then we come into the New Testament when, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he gives himself for us. You talk about giving until it hurts. Every Easter as we come up to this season, I watch Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I will assure you, 
that as I watch it, I don't watch it to enjoy Hollywood, but it's to remember. He gave until it hurts. I'm going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. I'm going to give you a, full, a few thoughts, and I'm going to close with a, a little story. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 8, or right? Yes, Isaiah chapter 8. You know, the first time in my entire ministry, a few months happened, what happened to me, I'm up on the stage and I'm teaching in Ohio at a friend's church, and I'm talking along, and all of a sudden I forgot where I was at. My wife was sitting right down there, and I said, honey, what was I just talking about? And she went like this. And a guy in the very back of the room said, You're, you were talking about Mason. Story we have of a little boy. And I got right back into it. But when I got done, it shook me. So I have a rule that the Nowries, Violet, and I live by. I remember our name, and she remembers where we're going. That's what we have happening. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 8. Powerful passage of Scripture. It says, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. Today is the first day the children are in this building. I, you, you dad, you mom, grandpa, grandma, great-grandparents, those that hope to be parents, I and the children who God has given me. What are you going to do with that? What are we going to do with that as a church? America has slipped into comfort and it's creeped into the church. You look at the reason people go to church today and we're competing for entertainment. Keller is no different. Since I was just here a year and a half, two years ago, I've never seen such building and development and the size of houses and the size of churches and everything that's happened. Yesterday, we were in Roanoke, and I'll give a, a plug right here because it's the truth. Pete said, I'm going to take you to a place with the best ribs that are in I've ever eaten, put in my mouth. Now that's saying a lot because he and I both know barbecue. We know it. And sometimes somebody will say, oh, I got good barbecue. I go and I don't say anything bad, but I'll go, that's the same ribs I've eaten in 500 places. So when Pete said, these are the best ribs in all of, I've ever had, I said, oh, we're going. And he's on this one meal a day thing that's killing me. So we go to Smiley's Barbecue at the little food court in Roanoke. And I will stand and say to those two boys that work in there, it's the best rib I ever put in my mouth. And so here we are gathered together in that place. We get done, we walk down the street, we go in a boot store just for something to do. And I walk in and, and they got a pocket knife rack sitting on the counter. Young lady that's working in there and, and uh, I want to look at the pocket knives because my father, my, both my grandfathers, my uncles, 
you had a handkerchief in your pocket, you had a pocket knife in your pocket, or back in my day, you got a whooping. This was for sweat on your brow, cut on your hand, or if a lady cried. Pocket knife was to fix anything like the Swiss Army man we met just a minute ago. But you had that in your pocket. I can't tell you how many times I was with my granddads or my dad and they'd say, Kirk, Mark, we knew what it was. Pull out your handkerchief, got your pocket knife. Men of responsibility. Men that came out of a generation that it meant something. I and the children that God has given me. You go over here to um, Hebrews chapter 2. And here it's repeated. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies, that's God setting us apart, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, that's God. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's today. Again, I'm going to put my trust in who I've chosen to follow. That's God. That's not to be compromised in the Nowry family. It's not up for a vote. Somebody's not allowed to say in the Nowry family, Grandpa, would it be okay if I become a Hindu? No. Why? Because I was first called... My dad was called, my mom was called, my grandfathers were called, my aunts and uncles were called to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. I and my children. That's what it says here. I and the children God has given me. These children are not mine. They are the gifts of God. They're like arrows inside a quiver. And as they are coming up in this building, we're supposed to point them in a direction of what? I was preaching a few weeks ago, and on the front row was my oldest granddaughter, Bentley, and she brought her two lost friends that, that are out of her Friday morning Starbucks uh, Bible study. She's 13. As I'm getting ready to come up on the stage, she comes over and whispers to me, Grandpa, they both need to receive Jesus. Now, I had a whole thousand people in front of me, but you know what I had on my heart? not letting my granddaughter down, realizing there were two 13-year-old girls that I didn't want to walk out, that they did not know how to receive Christ. That's what that building stands for. That's what we're committed to. I made a huge decision because we're mostly in India, that when our nine grandchildren got together, it's for fun. We're going to fish off the dock. We're going to go to the pool. We're going to, you know, go eat. Krispy Kreme donuts and all of that stuff. But on purpose, I'm going to talk to them about the three things I want in their life. I'm now the grandpa. This is not all about video game rides in the truck and sitting in the house. At my house, when they come over, all that stuff's got to go in a drawer. And I can have the moaning and groaning and, uh, you know. I go, nope, not at grandpa's house. But at the same time, I'm not making them pull weeds. But I'm going to show them adventure, like, you know, adventure. 
but we're going to have talks about three things. I need you to know Jesus Christ personally. I need to tell you what that means to be in relationship with Jesus. Number two, I need you to know the Bible deeply. You know, we're hearing a lot today about these 20-something years old that grew up in church or grew up in Christian families and are walking away from the Christian faith. I've even heard about some pastors. And I go, what in the God's name is this? Pastors walking away from the faith. I'll tell you why. Because way back I began to see the Bible not being taught like it should be. We're trying to keep everyone entertained, comfortable, amenities. You know, when Pete was a kid growing up in the youth department, the youth department went up for a vote. It's my responsibility to provide a good youth department. We had four activities a month. We went roller skating. We, we went out and helped old people. When I ran out of things to do, I went and got the shredded computer paper, if you remember that day, big bags of it, and I took the kids out in buses, and we papered everybody's house that was in the church. <laughs> and the kids loved it. We had it down to a science. But on Sunday mornings, we meant business about teaching the Word of God. When you quit teaching the Word of God deeply, you'll have defections from the faith because it's the Word of God that guides us on those dark nights when we're alone in our college rooms. I don't mind kids going to, to, to secular universities, but it, listen to what he said here a few weeks ago. When you're a Christian, nothing's secular. Everything is spiritual. So when you go to Duke, that's a spiritual decision. Your life is a spiritual commitment. The same as if you went to a Christian university like Liberty. Please, as you build this new building, remember that the chief thing we do with these children, these junior hires in high schools, is not entertain them. It's to teach them what it's like to be in personal relationship with Jesus, what it's like to be in, in the Word of God. You know, I... My son, oldest son got on to me the other day because I tend to say that I think everyone needs a paper Bible. Now, it's okay if you've got an electronic Bible. I understand all that. But I think every person ought to have a paper Bible to write down notes and put dates and that when they come against challenges, they'll say, there, I remember we were in Isaiah chapter 8 one time, Mr. Nowry was preaching, and he reminded us of what we're to do with our children. My son said, you're going to disconnect with the 20-something-year-olds. I said, well, that's okay with me. A deep personal relationship with Christ, deeply understanding the Word of God. The third thing is, I want them to know the purpose of God for their life. You know, my wife and I, when I'm preaching on Hope Partners, we're out at the lobby and we're sponsoring kids and showing the pictures and everything, and people will come up and, please don't do this. Please. Don't walk up and say, I could never let my kids do that. I'm not sure why you think that's up to you. I want the kids to know the purpose of God for their lives. 
You've got to guide them to it because the time they get 17, 18 years old, if you don't have them equipped, they're not making it for that reason. That's why that building exists. That's why Pete takes deep dives into the Scripture. Someone said to me the other day, they hope Christ comes back. Things are such a mess. I said, don't ever say that again. And the lady who's a dear friend of mine said, why not? I said, because on the day he comes back, I can't rescue another child, and we can't lead another neighbor to Christ. What I just said doesn't mean that I need you to send your, your, I don't need you to load your family up and go to India, but certainly I'm challenging you that when your kids come home out of this building that they say, Mom and Dad, let's walk off across the street and show acts of compassion to lead our neighbors to Christ. Dave just up saying, this is Easter. You get two shots in the year, Christmas Eve and Easter. You can't just walk over there like you're a Jehovah Witness and you haven't done any acts of compassion. You know, you walk over, you want to go to church with us on Easter? All year long, you've got to plant acts of compassion. My wife makes more things of cookies, you know, and I go, it's time. Twelve dozen, twelve neighbors. Give them updates on what we're doing, why we're home, why we're in the pandemic, how our work's going, all that stuff. So on the day they face a crisis and they knock on the door like one neighbor did and said, can you help me with my daughter? Walk across the street. It doesn't end here in these buildings. It's the beginning of what we do in the field. My dear friends, this morning, I believe with all of, our, all of my heart this morning that the legacy that you gave to, the legacy that was built, is now the legacy of what's taught in those rooms. To know Christ, not just in a decision, a childhood decision, but to cultivate that into a deep personal relationship, to, to know that we are committed to the Word of God. You know that passage that you hear so often in these children's messages, train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't, they won't uh, slip away from it. Well, let's first start with you, Dad. Before we start training up a child, how about you, Dad? Are you doing what you're asking your kids to do? You don't go to church. When your teenager goes, I don't want to go to the youth department. What if they looked at you and say, well, you know, Pops, I don't want to go to the youth department because you skip church most of the time. And to know the purpose of God for your life. I miss my kids overseas. I miss being with my, my grandkids. I remember we came in here and did a video or something on this, this grandpa that had breakfast with his kids, grandkids, every Sunday morning, biscuits and gravy and all that stuff. I wish I could be that granddad. I commend him. I'd like to see him again this morning, ask him how it's going, and go high five. Building a legacy into him on what that family's values are. Had the grandkids over this summer because of the pandemic. All, of, all nine of them, we had them rotating in and out of our little house. And so I ran a, a tool contest. I grew up with tools. You knew what they were used for. If dad sent you to get a crescent wrench, you knew what to get. If he sent you to get a vice grip, you knew what to get, and you knew how to clean them and put them back in their proper place. 
So I told the grandkids, we're going to have a $5 contest. And when they're little squirty kids, you know, that's a lot of money. But we're going to talk, take the top 10 tools in the toolbox because I want you to remember where we came from. So I got the channel locks and the crescent wrench and the needle nose and the side cutters and the regular pliers and the screwdrivers and the needle nose. Got 10 tools, put them on a board, wrote what they are, went over it, went over it for about three days. Then I put all the tools in the toolbox. And Roman, how old's Roman, the littlest? Huh? Six. Little squirty kid. I said, Roman, go get me a vice grip. He was there. He had to be there 15 minutes. I said, don't come back without the tool. And he comes back, and he's got the channel locks. I said, good job, Roman. That's not it, but we're going to keep trying. And on the last day, after about 10 days, their mom and dad, our daughter and her husband, came over. They're sitting on the porch. I said, and there, the boys are, are jonesing. Now, Grandpa? No. I said, all right. Liam, go get me side cutters. Back he came with the side cutters. Roman, go get me a vice grip. They went and got them. They're laid out on the table right there. Their dad's eyes were this big. We have a charge and responsibility to leave a legacy that's practical and spiritual. Let me close with this. So when I was growing up, we grew up in a little small church. And on Saturday night before church, my dad made us shine our shoes. Military guy, remember, he used to say, if you don't shine your shoes, that's a, that shows your character. I remember that till this day. I shined my shoes last night. And then my mom sat down with us when we were little old kids. How much you make this week, Kirk? I said, uh, $7. Okay, that's 70 cents for your tithe. Write it down on your little offering envelope. I'd write it down. Kirk, how much you want to give to the missions offering? 20 cents. Put that down. How much you want to give to the building fund? I was 8, 9, 10 years old. 10 cents. I was trying to get to that dollar. Write your name on it. Got your Bible to go to Sunday school. And I was raised to be a steward. Now, that may be an old school way of doing that, but how are we going to do that in this new generation, new technology with these children? You don't just one day wake up 40 years old and say, God's been good to me. I think I'll become a steward. It doesn't happen that way. Raise up a child to face Jesus Christ, to know the Word of God deeply, and to know their purpose in life. Let's pray. Father, right now I'm praying for all of us that have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that as we get ready to go out and enjoy the dedication of this building and all that it means, all that's happened here in this legacy campaign, all that is before us in our country and world, I pray that from Hillside Church, another Billy Graham would be raised uh, Another Mother Teresa, another great and noble, godly person to make an impact on the world. I pray from Hillside, from this building, that there will be a, another Pichiafalo raised, another, 
another Gail Chiafalo and Dave Bream and, and Jill and another Chris Chance and his wife, another Brian Hodges, another Lindsay. God, I'm praying that from that place, they might see what a good time we're having serving God. And these kids might say, that's what I want to do with my life. Because in the blink of an eye, we'll be old people and someone will sit on a bedside with us in a hospital room and hold our hand as we step in the presence of you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so put inside of us a renewed passion, a a renewed strength, a renewed commitment toward the things of God. And this morning, Father, I pray from the bottom of my heart that if there's one person in here today that does not know you, one person, that today they might ask for forgiveness of sins and invite you into their life as Lord and Savior. So while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, for that one person that's here today that does not know that heaven's their home, they've come in here today looking for an answer for the big hole running through them, I pray for you right now. And I ask you, why would you let this opportunity pass? Give your heart to Jesus. You say, how do I do that? In a moment, I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray that with me. I want you to mean it in your heart. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. He was raised from the dead in accordance with the witnesses, his closest, the people that didn't even know him, witnessed him being raised from the dead. And if you simply put your trust in him, heaven will be your home. That that prayer, pray it with me right now. Don't let this opportunity pass. It goes like this. Dear God, the best way I know how, I put my life in your hands. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's what I heard today. And I thank you for doing that. And today I make a commitment to make you Savior and Lord of my life. And I'll do the very best I can to follow you all the days of my life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning, on either side of this worship center, back in this corner, this corner, you can go, that's right, in the corner, in these two corners, You go by over there, we'll have some materials to follow up with that decision. Put a Bible in your hands to guide you. But it's the the most important thing we do right now. Don't just simply walk away. Go over there, they're not going to sign you up for something. They're going to set you on a path of eternal life. Now let's all of us, all of us, re-surrender our children and grandchildren, even those that we don't know that we'll walk through that building and have their lives changed forever. In the name of Jesus, amen.